Wow, that was, uh, that was some good singing. I think we might as well just go home. No such luck. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are here. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, we're in a series called Blueprint, and it's a study of this letter written by the Apostle Paul in which he addresses what it means to be a Christian, and then he goes to great lengths to uh, try and explain as best he can God's overarching purpose for our lives as individuals and as the church. And if you were around last week, you know last Sunday we talked about zombies, uh, because Paul and zombies go together naturally, right? Uh, If you missed that, you might want to go online and listen. It'll be self-explanatory, but... uh, Uh, Let me just say that last Sunday we noted how Paul opens chapter 2 of his letter reminding Christians in the church of how they were the walking dead. That's what he calls them, the walking dead, you know, rebellious, spiritually lifeless creatures deserving of God's wrath. But, Paul says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here's my Reiki summary. Paul says that by faith in Jesus, we who were living but dead are now living and alive. And it's God's grace alone that moves us from that former existence to the latter. And then this new life that we have in Jesus is marked. It's marked by contentment, acceptance, forgiveness, and selfless living. Now, what's interesting Uh, is that after Paul reminds his readers of their former existence, he immediately reminds them of something else. Uh, And just so you know, in ancient Greek writing, this was a a literary device known as anamnesis, or remembering. Uh, And it's where uh, an author encourages his readers to appreciate their present status by recollecting their disadvantaged position in the past. And so that's what Paul's doing. He said, remember this. And now in verse 11, he says, remember this also. Remember that formerly, you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father, by one spirit. Uh, so, okay, there's a, <clears throat> there are, there's a lot of things uh, in this section that we could talk about. But as you, as you read it, as you hear it, I'm wondering, you know, what, what strikes you? I mean, what, what do you think was most important to Paul here? What was he really getting at as he was writing this? And you may have some ideas on that. For me, the key issue seems for me, it seems somewhat obvious because Paul repeats a certain word several times, and that word is peace. Peace. Now, it's no secret to any of us that um, 
A depressingly relentless cycle of conflict exists uh, today between many nations and religious cultures of our world. Places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Nigeria, North Korea, Ukraine have all uh, experienced recent outbursts of, of violence. Much of that violence continues. Back in February, I had the opportunity to travel to the Middle East to go to Israel, where I discovered the Holy Land isn't so holy. And in fact, um, my reason for going wasn't to just visit religious sites, but to go and try to gain a better understanding of the hate and the violence and the conflict that exists there between Jews and Palestinians. It's troubling. In other places of the world, the refugee crisis is generating a lot of animosity and conflict. Uh, in his study guide on Ephesians, <clears throat> which we have, by the way, at the Resource Center, if you're interested, it's a nice little study, very readable, very accessible to everyone. It's written by theologian N.T. Wright. And in that, uh, in that guide, he writes how one of the greatest worldwide problems of our time is the plight of refugees and asylum seekers. People in the West sometimes pretend the world is now a civilized place where most people can go about their business in peace. But the evidence suggests that is over-optimistic. I mean, here's the thing. We don't have to look very far. We don't have to go very far to find conflict in our world because we have enough of it right here at home, all around us. There's suspicion, there's tension, there's, there's animosity, segregation, violence between various communities, black and white, rich and poor, citizens and refugees, police and civilians, right wing, left wing. There are tensions between colleagues in our offices, students on our campuses, Cruelty and abuse exists even within our own families. And all of this begs the question, as human beings, can, can we ever stop fighting? Can we ever stop fighting? I mean, is peace within our, our relationships, our communities, and between cultures possible? And at the risk of sounding naively hopeful, I think the answer is yes. How? Before we get to that, let's talk a little bit more about the human the human problem, because we clearly have one. And uh, in a way, Paul points out the problem by addressing the Jewish-Gentile conflict of his day, which, which serves as sort of this uh, case study of overall racial and cultural hostility. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, in verse 11, uh, Paul specifically writes to Gentile believers, and he says, remember, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth Remember, you were, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were without hope. You were without God. Truth is, you were far from him, Paul says. In other words, you were Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless, godless. He says, that's, how, that's, the, that's the condition you're in. But now he says, but now all that's changed. It's all changed because in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then he goes on to describe how there was this, this hostility that existed you know, between the Gentiles and the Jews. And the Greek term that he uses for hostility here, he uses it a couple times, literally means hate. I mean, the two groups hated each other. Uh, what was that hate about? Uh, Paul hints at the cause of it when he, when he says, you Gentiles who are called uncircumcised, and just so you know, that was not a, that was a, that was, that was a label, um, that the Israelites applied to anyone who wasn't Jewish. And it wasn't a nice label. It was, it was a title of ridicule. It was a title of disdain. He says, you, you, know, you Gentiles were mockingly called uncircumcised. 
by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Uh, Now, there are some language nuances that get lost in translation here, but Paul was basically saying, you Gentiles are ridiculed, despised, and hated by those who consider themselves superior to you because of a physical attribute that carries no spiritual significance, i.e., Jewish people looked down their noses at Gentiles because they were different. They weren't Jewish. And Paul knew that. He understood that. He knew the prejudice existed because he was Jewish. And he felt the same way about Gentiles at one point in his life. And that attitude of superiority was an ironically sad deal when you consider how uh, from Israel's very beginning, uh, God said why? He said he intended to bless the entire world through his chosen people, that they would be a light to all of the nations, right? That was a good thing. But over time, the Israelites allowed a good thing, their chosenness, to become the basis of a bad thing, their prejudice. And they came to uh, hold the nations uh, in contempt, You know, they saw themselves as better than Gentiles, which means better than everyone else. And as I see it, uh, herein lies humanity's problem on an individual, uh, cultural, national level. Sinful arrogance always leads to a sense of superiority over those who are different. I mean, think about it. The Israelites hated the Gentiles as an inferior people group, and the Gentiles hated the Jews for hating them. It was this vicious cycle of hate. That's what happens. Whenever an individual, a community, a nation, a race, a culture views itself as superior to another, the end result is hateful disdain, if not outright conflict, violence, and war. And if we're honest, I think we'll all admit that like Israel, as sinful creatures, We each have this tendency, uh, we have this tendency to see the good things about ourselves, even some of the the things that God has gifted us with, as somehow making us better than others. Even as followers of Jesus, we sometimes cop this better-than-most attitude and look down on non-believers with disdain. Men and women, God loves And what I find to be immensely disappointing is when this happens within the Christian community itself. You know, when, when we allow certain strengths and, and abilities and opinions and preferences to cause division within the body and contempt for one another. Heard the story recently of a, of a guy who was shipwrecked on an island for one year. He survived all alone for a year. And as a devoutly religious person, uh, when his rescuers came ashore to get him, uh, they noticed he had built two, two huts on opposite ends of a long stretch of beach, and these huts had crosses on them. And they said, well, what are those? He, he said, well, you know, that's where I worship. And they said, well, why do you need two churches? He said, well, you, you always need one to attend and another to criticize and complain about. <laughs> I'd laugh even more about that if it weren't so true. <laughs> Here's the point. There is something in every human heart, every human heart, Jew, Gentile, Christian, non-Christian, religious, irreligious, makes no difference. There's something in every human heart that wants to take what is good about ourselves and allow it to make us feel superior to others, especially those who are different. 
That's messed up. And it's the sinful arrogance that sits at the core of, of human hostility. So you see, in, in many ways, the conflict between first century Jews and Gentiles represents the kind of national, cultural, racial, social, religious hate and conflict we see out played in our world every day. Is there a solution? Well, over the last century, over the last hundred years or so, most modern philosophers, sociologists, and politicians have said, yes, there's a solution. More money, more programs, more education, more policies, more legislation. That'll cure our human ills. But none of it's worked. It hasn't worked. Humanity's answer to the problem fails. In fact, some of the strongest proponents of, of this, what's referred to as Enlightenment philosophy, some of the strongest proponents of it gave up. Ernest Becker's a classic example. He's a famous American cultural anthropologist, Pulitzer Prize winning author, uh, who believed very firmly and wrote very extensively on how war, hate, racism, crime, violence could be solved through applied social science. But by the end of his life and his career, he changed his mind completely. In his last book that was published just after his death, Escape from Evil, he wrote, my previous writings did not take sufficient account of truly vicious human behavior to show that man is truly evil causing and yet to move beyond this to the possibilities of sane, renewing action, some kind of third alternative beyond bureaucratic science or despair is necessary. In other words, we can't solve the problem. We, we, something else is necessary to solve the problem. We're not doing it ourselves. H.G. Wells was another famous 20th century author, modernist, uh, a man who believed in the perfectibility of human nature. He came to the same conclusion. He put it more succinctly. He said, Homo sapiens, as he is wont to call himself, is finished. Through. And there are many others today who, who still hold to this modernist, humanistic philosophy. But then there are others who once believed in it as well, that believe that education, programs, policies, legislation could cure what ills humanity. But they've lost, they've lost their optimism. And they concede that hate and hostility, well, it's just part of the deal. It's part of the human deal. Just part of it. We, we, can't, we can't solve our own problems. And the Apostle Paul would agree with that. But he would argue there is a solution, and God has it. What is the solution? He writes, Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. In short, Paul says, Paul says, God has a solution, and the solution to, to the hate and the hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles was to make the two groups one, to create this one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. In fact, the Greek term for humanity here is a very strong one. And in order to get, to get the strength of it, you know, I think it's helpful to think of it this way. Let's say you're, you're a member of a golf club. Okay, you're a member of a golf club, which means you share, you share some common interests with other club members, right? You, you like golf, you play golf, you watch golf, you talk about golf, you wear weird spiky golf shoes, all of that. You know, you have these things in common. 
Or, you know, let's say, let's say another club. Let's say you're in a chess club. I mean, you share an interest uh, with uh, board games with people. You, you're in a bridge club. You like, you like playing cards. If you're in the loyal order of Moose Club, I have no idea what you like uh, other than Moose, but uh, something, you know, you share something in a few common, uh, commonalities with, with other members of the club, right? But when you're part of the same race, part of the same nationality, so part of this, a member of, a, of, a, of the same people group, there is a much deeper and more profound connection than just being in a club, right? I mean, that's, and that's what Paul's point is. He's saying that being a Christian creates this deep spiritual connection between people that surpasses everything else, everything else. That's why a Gentile believer in Jesus can and will experience an intense affinity for a Jewish follower of Jesus because they, they've, they've had the same rebirth experience. They both understand the conviction of sin. They both know the liberating grace of God. They both share hope. They both share faith. And that bond is stronger than anything. It transcends race, culture, and nationality. According to Paul, Christianity, the church, big C, represents a, new, a completely new people, one new humanity. And that's why, for example, that's why back in January, uh, I, when I spent a, a week at a Trappist monastery, that's why I was able to sit down with a monk whose passions and convictions, uh, his interests, his single celibate cloistered life was very, very different from mine, and yet sitting there talking with him about Jesus, I, I looked across the table and I realized this guy, Michael, is my brother. This guy, despite all the differences, this guy's my brother. It's why when I go to the Middle East and I meet with a Palestinian living in a refugee camp in the West Bank who happens to be a Christian, there's an immediate bond. There's, there's, there's a connection, a deep connection. that takes. There's no hostility. He's my brother. Do you see what I'm saying? And more importantly, do you, do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that God takes men and women from all walks of life, from all over the globe, from, from different colors and cultures, and he creates one new humanity, allowing us then to overcome the racial divisions and the hate that keep us from living at peace. That's the solution. Now, how is it accomplished? How does God do that? Paul says, in Jesus, one new humanity is created out of the tube, making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Translation, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, you know, his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of humanity and his gracious offer of forgiveness, when embraced by faith, brings people together in peace. Peace with God, this vertical peace. Peace with one another, this horizontal deal. Interesting note here, <clears throat> I just learned this this week, this Greek term that Paul uses, reconcile, it's the this is the first usage of this term ever attested to in Greek language, ever, first ever. What does that mean? Well, scholars say it, it means that very likely Paul coined the term, i.e. he made it up. <laughs> he made the term up. And what he did is he took the original term for reconcile and he added, he added a preposition to it. So the, little, literal, the literal translation is super reconciled. The idea being that in Jesus, not only are people reconciled to God, but we are super reconciled to God and to one another. 
Perhaps another way to think of it all is to say that when the grace and forgiveness of God is experienced through faith in Jesus, it changes the human heart. And that's, a key, that's key. Listen, secular Western culture rightly believes that hate, prejudice, racism, and the violence it creates, it's wrong. It's a horrible thing. And Christianity, we agree with that. We're in agreement. We believe the same thing. From start to finish, Scripture teaches the same, that all human beings, all human beings are created in the image of God. Therefore, they are equal in status and value before their creator, Genesis 1. It's why when God went to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through, through you, all the peoples of the world, through your people, all the peoples of the world are going to be blessed. Because why? Because I love the world. I love everybody. That's why when Moses married a black African woman in Numbers 12, God not only approved of the relationship, but rebuked those who spoke out against it. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter, who, by the way, carried some, carried some prejudices when it, when, it um, uh, when it came to Gentiles. But Peter, he has this vision one day through which God makes it very, very clear to him that his hate, his hate and racism and prejudice was wrong. And Peter's response to the experience, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Not some, all. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John describes heaven as what? As a great multitude no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne of God, worshiping together in peace, declaring his holiness. Everybody together. I mean, understand, Christianity and secular Western culture agree on this. Racism and the hostility it produces is a horrible, horrible thing. It is wrong. But secularism, you see, tries to solve the problem by going after the mind with the goal of educating, uh, scolding, and punishing people until it's eliminated. But it hasn't worked, and it won't work. Because the problem isn't just an issue of the mind, it's an issue of the heart. Scripture says the human heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And therefore, the gospel goes after and changes both the mind and the heart both the rational and the emotional. To cure, the, to cure human hostility rests not only with transforming what you think, but transforming how you feel and how you love. Paul says it's out of love for the world. Jesus came to reconcile both, both Gentiles and Jews. He says he came and he preached peace to you who are far away, you Gentiles, and peace to those who are, who are near, Israelites. For through him, his sacrifice, his blood, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And in other words, Paul was saying, he's saying, look, Jewish people had the law of God, but they couldn't keep it. It's impossible to keep it. Gentiles couldn't keep the law because they didn't have it. They knew nothing about it. And they were far from God. What is he saying? He's saying, both peoples needed forgiveness. Both peoples needed to be reconciled. All, all of them, Jew and Gentile alike, needed rescuing. They all needed Jesus, equally needed Jesus. 
Do, do, do you see why then the gospel destroys the barriers of, of human hostility and racism and brings peace? Because it places Jew and Gentile, which, by the way, categorizes everybody on earth, right? It places everybody on earth on equal footing. It eliminates any kind of a pecking order. We are all created in the image of God, and we are all sinfully broken. As human beings, no one is superior to anyone else. I mean, when will that reality, when will that reality move from our heads to our hearts? Because until it does, until you understand and and experience the gospel, the true gospel of grace, you will keep dividing the world. You will. You'll keep dividing it. You'll keep looking at, at those who are different from you, and with a sense of superiority, you will say, oh, those people, mm, those people over there, those people across the street, those people, those people across the ocean, those people over there, those people of different color, those people of different race, those people of different religion, those people of different classes, those, those people of different political persuasions, those, those people, those less educated people, those poor people, those powerless people, those needy people, those people. The gospel destroys that kind of thinking, destroys those kinds of feelings of superiority because it humbles you. It humbles you and it breaks your heart because it says to each and every one of us, as human beings, we are all in need of God's grace and rescue. Every one of us. Jesus came preaching and providing peace for everybody. In him, we are super reconciled to God and to one another, putting us at peace. And that's why in other letters to the church, Paul writes things like, he says, you know, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. All, not a select few. All. Don't you see how Diversity in the church, diversity in the church in all of its, in all of its forms is a, is, a, is a glorious demonstration of the love of God for our world and the reconciling work of Jesus. It is, a, it is, it is it's something to be celebrated, something to be, to be cultivated as it provides this beautiful image of heaven, this, this one new humanity in which there is true peace. No attitudes of superiority but love and acceptance. In commenting on this section of Paul's letter, uh, N.T. Wright says this, Today's church may no longer face the question of the integration of Jew and Gentile, though there are places where that is still an issue, but we face quite urgently the question which Paul would insist on as as a major priority. If our churches are still divided in any way along racial or cultural lines, he would say our gospel, our very grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death is called into question. And he's absolutely correct. Because with the gospel of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of grace, there there is no room for superiority or hate between anyone. Listen, in a... um, In a world that is riddled with tension, prejudice, racism, hate, violence, both home and abroad, educational programs, political policies, 
policies, governmental laws, they may help, they may help, but they will never cure the problem. They will never cure the problem because they cannot cure the human heart. They can't do it. Only God can do that. And only through Jesus can we as, as sinful human beings be super reconciled both to our creator and to one another, thus forming one new humanity, putting an end to the hostility and resulting in true peace, true lasting peace. And here's the deal. In this hostile, segregated world of ours, if we as followers of Jesus, if we as the church ever hope to lead the way in true peacemaking, then unconditional love and celebrated diversity must be lived out in our lives and in our relationships and in our congregations every single day in every way possible. Is it? Are we just, are we just coming to be religious? Or has the gospel of grace truly changed our minds and our hearts? uniting us as one new humanity in peace. How we treat one another will tell the story. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you at this moment acknowledging that each and every one of us, we are created in your image. Yet each and every one of us is a broken human being. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. And our inflated opinion of ourselves, our arrogance, it, it so often leads to feelings of superiority and judgmentalism and even hate. I pray this morning, God, that your spirit would, would, would point out in our lives if this is a reality for us, that your Holy Spirit would, would help us come to grips with our own sense of superiority, our own prejudice, our own racism, our own hate and disdain for others who are different. How can we hold on to that when we realize what you've done for us in Jesus and what you want to do for humanity? Reconcile us to you, our creator, and super reconcile us to you and one another, creating this new humanity. Lord, we long for that. I long for it. And I pray that as we continue in this world of ours, as your church, that we would do whatever we can to represent this new humanity, this, this family, this body of believers. And we look forward to that day when we will all be together before you in heaven, men and women from every walk of life, from every nation and tribe, every language, all standing together before your throne, singing of your holiness, singing in peace because of Jesus. Remove our hate to love one another and to the world in which we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? So thanks for, thanks for being here this morning. And, um, you know, I, I can't help but thinking how, 
education, policies, even religion can change some behaviors, those external behaviors. But the a problem in the world is the human heart. And only God can change that. And the way that happens is through faith in Jesus and being reconciled to him and one another. Um, and embracing this idea of God's grace. I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian. And, um, and when we embrace it, we experience it, it changes the equation. It changes us, not just, our heart, not just our minds, but our hearts. And that's the message of the gospel that we as a church, we want, we want people to know. We want everyone to hear about. And um, hopefully you, under, you understand it. And you've come to that place in your life where you've, you've embraced the gospel, you've embraced Jesus. And you can tell because it'll change the way you think and the way you live. So thanks for coming. Um, I hope you'll come back next week. We're going to continue to look at what Paul says uh, in this letter. Uh, and what comes next is, is quite interesting as well. It's all pretty interesting. So hopefully you're finding it that way. If you're here and, you know, you've had a bad week, a tough week, and you just want someone to talk to or pray, pray with, our, our prayer team folks will be down in the front following. Or maybe you're here and you have questions about this idea of Christianity or maybe some questions about things you heard this morning. They're here for you as well, okay? Um, have a great day. I'm going to pray for us and we'll be dismissed. And now, Father, as the church leaves the building, as we go back out into our world, um, may the sunshine remind us of your goodness and your creativity and the beauty of you, our God. And may we celebrate all the beautiful things that you've created, including human beings made in your image and who you long to connect with again. May we as your church live our lives in such a way that we point people to Jesus this week. And may your hand of grace and peace and strength now rest on your, your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.